When it comes to investing, retirement, taxes, healthcare, and estate planning, the decisions you make today can greatly affect the quality of life for you and your loved ones tomorrow. What you need is straight and unbiased information on the most important issues you'll face when planning for your retirement and financial future. Good news. You found Premier Retirement Radio with Jeff Fogan. Jeff is the founder of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management, and he's been guiding people financially and into retirement for 30 years. So get ready for an hour of the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan. And now here's Jeff Vogan and Jeff Shade. Thank you so much. Welcome to Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. My name is Jeff Shade, and I'm just here to ask the questions. But of course, the words of wisdom and solid advice, of course, come from the other Jeff in this radio show. That would be Jeff Vogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Jeff, how is this weekend treating you so far, my friend? Well, not too bad. I've been wrestling my annual uh, bout with laryngitis or something that always seems to get me when the weather cools off. But, uh, you know, I talk for a living, so I probably don't give it enough rest to get through it. I just uh, keep powering on and eh, eventually it goes away. So hopefully I got enough voice to last me this hour and yeah. see how it goes. Well, I'm not licensed to talk about most of this stuff, uh, Jeff. So unfortunately, you're going to have to talk about it. But I think I one know. of the big misconceptions is that if you live in the land of sunshine here in Tucson, Arizona, that you don't get sick. But, you know, temperature and sunshine don't have to do anything with viral infections and unfortunately uh, you've got a little one here and uh, we're going to treat you fine here so that you can get through the rest of the show. <laughs> okay you. there's a lot to talk about and I don't mean to tax you on this but I want to first off start off with the Iowa caucus that just finished here. Trump is the undisputed leader here. He has really uh, taken this Iowa caucus. What do you think about that? Well you know it still remains to be seen if somehow the Supreme Court is going to hold up and allow states from, you know, limiting from the ballot. But I think that that would only happen in states that he wasn't going to win anyway. So I think there's still a path for him to uh, be a president again. I think the people remember how the economy was rocking and rolling. Whether you like Trump or not, you know, he is divisive. He has some, uh, you know, glitches that I wish he'd kind of get rid of and, yeah. you know, be a little bit nicer sometimes. But, you know, he's, uh, the nice thing is, is he wears his uh, words on his sleeve. You know what he's thinking. You know what he's going to do. You know, he's the kind of guy that I think people want between them and the adversary, whether it's be foreign countries, like we're seeing, you know, all this, uh, you know, uprisings of uh, people that are getting a little bit bold and bombing our bases and attacking other countries, knowing that the president administration isn't going to do anything about it. And I think they'll back off if Trump gets in there, which is actually a, a good thing for markets. Uh, war is not a good thing for markets typically, or even the prospects of it are seeing the discord amongst nations worldwide. So, you know, that's one area. The other thing is the economy. I mean, shoot, the economy, the, the crazy inflation is getting out of control and still out of control, really. You right. know, still growing at four, four-ish percent on top of, you know, the 10 and eight and seven, six, all adding up to, you know, 20 plus percent. I mean, people's money is only going about 80% as far as it used to. And, you know, even if wages are higher by 4%, that's still not giving people the buying power to really support a growing economy. Even though I think there's some number fudging going around with some of the earnings and some of the write-offs, one-time write-offs and the different things, you know, layoffs here and government creating jobs there. There's a, a little bit of a disconnect on what's really happening, what's really happening, or what we think is happening, what's really happening. But I think the, the people with money, most investors, most people that work for a living and have to buy stuff, remember that even if they were Democrat or Republican or no matter who they voted for, when Trump was in office, things got better, got better for every community, not just right. the white community, not just the, the privileged you know, white people, it was, you know, the Hispanics, the Native American communities, all those people increased their everything from, you know, jobs to incomes 
net worth to just the ability to sustain their lives at a, at a higher level. And so, you know, it's that's not been so long ago that people haven't forgotten that. So, no. you know, the prospect of getting Trump back in there, I think, would be a huge boon to the economy. I mean, to the markets, at least. I don't know if it'll fix the economy. I think it might, because if the markets go good and people get a little bit more confident and are able to spend money, although most of the free money that's been the helicopter money, as we call it, it's been given out over the last couple of years is kind of used up. There's not a lot of free money that would go back in the market. But I think businesses would be a little bit more confident even even to borrow money at slightly higher rates because they're scared now to do that because the economy doesn't support, you know, the growth that it needs to uh, justify, you know, taking loans and, you know, hurting their balance sheets and having to pay more for workers. And all these things are, you know, not good under the present administration. I mean, Biden hasn't done it. Biden economics, it, it's, it's crazy. I think I heard a quote of him saying, you know, hey, Biden, how come people aren't really uh, too crazy about binomics? And he says, oh, well, haven't you heard? It's better now. And the thing that nobody knows is who's responsible for it. You know, it's like, what? As if he's responsible for what? The new great economy? He has no clue. He's never worked for a living. He's done corrupt business deals with his kid and, you know, all this stuff to raise money and to support his family. He doesn't even know how business works. He doesn't understand how people that actually have jobs have bills to pay. And he doesn't get to put them on a company credit card, so to speak. In other words, the taxpayer's uh, pocketbook, which is everything he's done for 50 years is it's all been paid by the taxpayer and he could just do what he wants. And somehow, you know, everybody in the same uh, swamp protects them and they protect each other. So I think just the idea that Trump could, you know, still get kind of through all these fake uh, faux trials and, you know, all these uh, fake criminal activities that can't be proven and aren't proven in the sham that is happening in court systems around America is mind boggling. But, you know, considering that he's getting through it and he will get through it and he could be the president again, I think is a, is a really big deal to people that want to support their families, pay their bills, get ahead, have jobs, have a sustained economy and make money in the market so they can retire someday. So I think it will create good optimism. And I think if you look at historical market trends around the election, there is an election cycle where the first six months of the year during an election cycle, and that's this year, typically the market is kind of flat to down. And I think we're going to have that, quite frankly. I think it's going to be flat to down, maybe a little choppy. I can't believe the resilience of the market in face of the economic stuff that we're going to talk about in a minute, I'm sure, because I'm, you always have questions about that. But uh, as, far as, as far as the economic cycle or the uh, presidential cycle, once we know who the nominees are going to be, and once the public kind of gets a hint of things are going to change, now we could also see a big surprise like you know, a flipped election that where the other party wins when every poll and every logical mind on the planet thinks Trump is going to win by a landslide and then doesn't. I mean, I hope that doesn't repeat again. I hope there's enough safeguards and watchdogs in place to where we don't get some of that, hey, we can hide under the guise of COVID and fake ballots and do homes and, you know, write-ins and send-ins and ballot harvesting and all the other crazy things that happen that kind of, I think, twisted the election. I wouldn't call myself an election denier. I'm just an election realist. I see what happened. And it, the fact is, is it did not work the way it's supposed to work. And I think uh, there was uh, too much representation that wasn't really true representation. That was manufactured out of thin air in order to, uh, you know, orchestrate, you know, a different outcome. But whatever, that makes me election denier. I don't think that it was uh, certainly fair. And if there was a fair vote, maybe it would have counted up and been the same. But I just don't think so. Stats don't prove that. If we think that there can be a fair election and that Trump is the nominee, I think the second half of this year is when we'll see the market rebound. I do also think that before that happens, because every statistic and every historical cycle says so, that we're going to go into a recession. There's always a recession. Every time there's been Fed tightening, there's always been a recession after the Fed starts untightening. In other words, once the interest rates start being dropped, which Powell said he would, the recession typically comes right after that, which is the only reason that he would even drop interest rates 
would be because he knows that there's recessionary pressures ahead. That all the stuff that's happened over the last 18 months, the fact that there hasn't been earnings. The market went up 30% last year, and earnings went up less than 1% on the average corporation in the S&P 500. Earnings up less than 1%, and they only started ticking up at the fourth quarter, which was the only thing that almost justified you know, buying stocks in, in November, December, but they were already so overvalued, it really didn't. Yet, nevertheless, there's some momentum. There are some forgotten sectors that might, you know, end up needing a little support. But when it comes to the actual value of the market compared to the actual economic situation we're in, there's a disconnect. It's a facade. It's a big smoke and mirror game. And Wall Street's the perpetrators, and they're doing it so that people like you and me will get all excited when Trump becomes, uh, you know, wins, wins a thing in, in Iowa. When uh, you know the Fed says, even though I don't see a path to where they can lower interest rates three times and the market somehow thinks they're going to lower them six or seven times, and somehow they think inflation is going to drop to 2%, even though for the last two quarters it's gone up, it's flipped, it's going back up. Right. And yet somehow they think there's going to be some reason for the Fed to lower interest rates. There's a, a total disconnect in the markets. Smart people think there's going to be a recession. Uh, anybody who's a billionaire is not buying stocks. Why? Because they don't need to. They already have a billion dollars. Why do they want to lose a bunch of it? It's kind of the same theory of a retiree that works with us is you've already got a million dollars or $2 million or $5 million or maybe even a few hundred thousand dollars saved. Why risk losing it? I mean, this is your nest egg. This is your life's work that you want to retire on. Just like these billionaires, they still want to stay billionaires. So uh, why are they going in the market? They're not. Warren Buffett's selling billions, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of stock. You've got um, Mark Zuckerberg sold his own stock, half a billion dollars. So there's still a lot of recessionary indicators that uh, we've still got rocky times ahead. But the light at the end of the tunnel is what you just said. And that is, hey, it looks like uh, Trump's got the support he needs. He's going to probably win the nomination. Some Republicans, unfortunately, are are a little bit uh, disenchanted with him and his activities and some of his uh, smugness and arrogance and what, narcissism, whatever it is. Trump sometimes is very hard to like. However, the results are not that hard to like. And I hope that the right wing will at least get behind him if he is the nominee rather than divide their votes up amongst two or three other independents or other candidates. Because if that's the case, it'll be just like Perot, you know, blew it for Bush back in the day. And, you know, because he took enough of the vote to where the Republicans had a split party. You don't want a split party. We got to get behind somebody. And if Trump's the guy, I think that bodes well for the market if everybody gets behind him. If the Republican Party continues to be as dysfunctional as they are by kicking out speakers of the House and then threatening to do it again and not being all on the same page and being as just dysfunctional as I've ever seen any political party be, I don't know that it's going to take place. So there is that hope. I think it does bode well for the market. But if it doesn't happen or if the Republican Party seems in disarray, not only is the first half of this year going to be bad, I think the whole year is going to be bad. And Jeff, to echo your earlier sentiments, whether or not you like Donald Trump personally, there is no arguing that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 has benefited us all, whether you're Republican, Democrat, or Independent. And I'm really not looking forward to that ending or sunsetting in 2025 or the end of 2025. And let's hope that uh, that does continue. I don't know if there's any hope that that will continue. But nevertheless, uh, certainly this is something that uh, we would like to see not go away because I certainly am much better off for it. We're talking with Jeff Ogan of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management here in Tucson and Mesa. We are talking about current events, our telephone number if you'd like to get in and uh, sit down with Jeff. Have an appointment and ask your questions. 520-780-9059. 520-780-9059. No cost, no obligation, and no judgment for this financial consultation. Let's continue with current events, Jeff. And uh, certainly I want to talk about the possibility of government shutdown. Now, it has come back to rear its ugly head at us again. 
Looks like maybe March is when it could happen, if it's going to happen, and uh, certainly it relates to the U.S. debt. $34 trillion, $7.6 trillion needs to be refinanced here in 2024. Some of the creditors that we have, Japan, $1.1 trillion, China, $859 billion. They're not our biggest creditor. Who is our biggest creditor? Well, the majority debt holder in America is Americans. I mean, we are the debt holders. Shoot, I mean, they've been given so much stimulus. They've been, uh, you know, creating money and just basically printing money. Who owes it? Taxpayers. We're all going to pay it over the, who knows how long, or they're going to have to have some, you know, great remonetization of the debt or great reset, which is not a good economic outcome. You look at what the, the pigs countries did, you know, what, 20, 30 years ago when they had to remonetize all their debt. Everybody who had bonds had to basically take a hit and start over. Now, you know, they've managed to, uh, you know, get through it okay, but now their debt's outrageous. It's way above ours. You know, same uh, European countries. You know, we're not too far behind that. You know, Japan's been trying to fight this forever. Their Nikkei index was uh, at its peak, I think it was in 1989, and it just barely is getting back there now. You know, 40 years later, it's a, a long time. You know, if we follow the same path as some of these other countries that just got into so much debt, the demographics were turning into more retirees than workers, just like Japan. You know, we're following that same suit. You know, we've got a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of things to worry about, especially is how are we going to pay off that debt? How are we going to get out of the hole that we've dug that somehow, you know, Congress that loves to print money because it only helps themselves are going to keep doing it until what? Until we vote them out, until some sense of reason gets put back into play. The thing is, is whoever does it, whoever gets us back on track, whoever becomes fiscally responsible and actually makes the government live within a budget and spend less money than it makes, which has never happened, but should. Um, if we even get close to that, if we start cutting expenditures for all these people whose cronies are getting paid with all this extra money that the government's printing or the free money that they're giving out and the cronies that they're paying off with every bill they pass, you know, that dries up. They don't get elected. So, I mean, they, they've got this gravy train. It's definitely a swamp. And they're going to continue to perpetuate that by continuing being sleazy. So, you know, I think the Republicans have always talked a good game. Let's get responsible. Let's do it. The thing is, is they can't because their own livelihood and their own votes are going to depend on it because if they're blamed as shutting down the government, then they're going to, you know, see the effects of that because people are going to blame them. The thing is, the Democrats aren't going to get in line with it. They just want to spend more and spend more. I mean, that's a fact. I mean, I'm not trying to be political here, but I am. I mean, I, I mean, I lean right. Yeah, you know that. Uh, I'm on the radio station because of that. I resonate with most of the listeners here. There's a party that just thinks, well, you can do whatever you want and there's no consequences. There's another party that says there's no and they call it out, but they don't do anything about it. And that's our party, unfortunately. It's so dysfunctional. It's crazy. And it's like, once you go to Washington, Mr. Smith goes to Washington because he wants to change and make a difference. Mr. Smith turns into swamp creatures. You know, as soon as they get there, they just, they just do. I mean, I've seen it happen with people that are, you know, some of my neighbors that got into Congress and then in the Senate. And I'm not going to name names. I've probably already done it before. But, you know, people I know personally that have just really flipped and people like this, how do you, I can't associate with them anymore. They're turncoats. They're self-centered people. I only care about themselves and their own little power game instead of the American people that voted them in office and try to get them put there so they could actually make a difference and represent the people that voted them there. So that's not happening. You know, I don't know that it'll happen with this next government shutdown, but, you know, I, I'm guessing that, you know, our new Speaker of the House is going to try to uh, you know, reason with the other party and come up with some sort of a solution. And because he's going to compromise, the Republicans are going to be stupid and dysfunctional. And they're going to have one guy step up and say, oh, we got to kick him out. Once they do, then they have to have a revote. This time, however, I have a feeling if he does kind of reach across the aisle a little bit and compromise, I think there'll be enough Democrat votes that they won't kick him out. I think they want a McCarthy out because he was actually you know good for raising money and keeping people in office. You know, but our new speaker, Mike Johnson, I mean, I think he's got 
you know, the ability to probably compromise a little bit better. I think he was a decent pick. I mean, so far, he hasn't anything that really irritates me other than the fact that he hasn't seemed to rally his own troops and get him on the same page. But I think he's actually rallied enough of the other aisle that I don't think they'll kick him out this time. But again, that's all political. That's not what the show's about. I think just a dysfunction in government, though, is a concern. And it really blows my mind that it's not more of a concern on how it affects the market and why people are still going into the market. I just want to mention, speaking of people going into the market, and I've mentioned this before, you know, the majority of the stock is 60% stock ownership by private households, down around 40% for institutions. It's usually the other way around. You know, I just got another one. You know, we've heard uh, Salesforce is a company that's really a big part of the Dow Index. Just read a quote a couple of days ago. I mean, actually, just a few weeks ago, uh, Mark Zuckerberg sold half a billion dollars worth of his own stock in Meta, in Facebook. Why would he do that when he could, you know, rich guys don't pay taxes. You know why? They have so much stock and so many billions and trillions of dollars, they can borrow all they want at whatever rate they want, and it doesn't matter. It'll never affect them. So if he can borrow at 6% from a bank, why would he sell half a billion dollars worth of his stock if he thinks it's going to go up more than 6%? Oh, and be willing to pay over $100 million in taxes. Why would you do that? unless you think the stock's going down or going into recession or something like that. Salesforce, back to that deal, this guy is quietly selling $3 million of his own stock a day and has been doing that for quite a long time. You know, he's a billionaire, you know, he created Salesforce, huge company, very overpriced CRM systems, but you know, it's kind of a state-of-the-art deal and everybody overpays for it, and so they make a ton of money. He's still selling, why? Because their price earnings ratio is horrible. Their growth prospects are not really that good, especially in the face of a recession. You've got uh, Warren Buffett selling, uh, you know, close to $200 billion in stock last year. And all he bought was $20 billion in, uh, in uh, Occidental, which, you know, he has a, a hunch might go up, but the stock hasn't really done that well. He's got basically five stocks he's hanging on, but he's just sitting on the sidelines selling and raising cash. President of Apple, Tim Cook, sold $80 million of his own stock, of his own Apple stock. Why? So he could pay taxes on it? Yeah, he had to pay taxes on it. Why would he do that? Take profits? Why would he take profits? Because you know the stock's going down. Guess what's happened since then? You know, Meta's gone down. Apple's gone down. Salesforce has gone down. They've, all these stocks have uh, gotten soft. Why? And who's, 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 who gets out first? It's the billionaires who know what's going on. So why are they getting out? But we're getting this cheerleading in the market where Powell says, you know, probably as a puppet for Wall Street, says, oh, we're going to lower interest rates next year. It's either because he knows there's going to be a really bad recession, he knows he's going to have to, or it's because he wanted to help Wall Street get a ton of bonuses during the last uh, you know couple months of the year because bonuses on Wall Street to all their execs are typically, and traders, they are uh, given based on calendar year results in almost all cases. So you had a horrible 2022, no bonuses. 2023, we got a chance to squeeze every bonus. And if you know you're going to have a recession coming up because you know every cycle ends in a recession and we're coming upon it within the next four to six months is kind of the end of that window. Why wouldn't you just try to milk every last dollar out of the market as you can and get your big bonuses because you know next year is going to have a hard time making any bonuses. Well, I think that's probably what happened. And I think, uh, you know, Powell played right into it. I think there's a lot of people that jumped on that wagon, made a little bit of money, but just like the smart money is doing right now, selling, it's probably you ought to sell too. Bottom line is, you know, we didn't get in on that rally because it was fake. It was cheer-led. There was no fundamentals. When the fundamentals finally started getting underneath it and we started just getting ready to get our toes wet, all of a sudden, the fundamentals started breaking down and you've got all these billionaires coming up selling stock. And it's like, okay, they know something we don't know. Why is it that you know, there was more money moved out of the market a couple of weeks ago than has been moved out since June? And most of it by institutions because it did not lower the amount that, that households own. It was institutions that got out. So this last stock market rally typically happens before a recession. There's usually a really big rally and it's usually overblown before a big sell-off occurs. 
And it's typically the time that Wall Street firms use to get their pension managers and their private clients and their big guys out of the market or at least reduce their risk so they can be more poised to get back in the market when the prices are better. Now, they can't get out of everything, but they try to you know hedge it for their favorite clients while they let the public and their 401ks and everybody else who apparently doesn't worry about losing money or doesn't really need to protect it as much as some of their you know more big clients and more important clients are supported. So I, th- I think that's what we're seeing right now. You know, again, there's uh, enough evidence to support those theories. Uh, people that I read, people that have, you know, done some research and support those theories. Again, you know, take that as my uh, my opinion more than it's any knowledge. I do not spend millions and millions of dollars of my own money to do research and peel back layers and layers of onions like people like Jeff Gunlack do, who I'm going to quote him in a second, because they manage billions, because they're a billionaire themselves. But if I do what they're doing and listen to them, I don't think I need to peel back the onion and spend the same millions of dollars they're spending on research, right? So I basically look at what the smart people are doing. This has worked. Well, it's worked against me in the past when I haven't listened to them, when I've just, you know, followed the cheerleading, like back in the dot-com era, which became dot-bombs. But I'm a little smarter now that I've been doing this over 30 years. I've seen what the smart money, they always get out first. There's certain things that always happen before a sell-off. We're seeing those things happen, just like in the dot-com era, when everything went great guns a-blazing and you couldn't lose money. And all of a sudden, it was like, oops, who's left holding the bag? It was a, uh, a private investor. It wasn't the institutions. Most of them got out. So let's just, uh, let, me, let me just say that Jeff Gunlack, he says there's two things. This is two last things. He manages billions of dollars. He owns, I think, one of the biggest hedge funds. It's called Doubletree Capital. And predominantly a bond trader. I mean, he really likes the bond market, but he is a guru in bonds. He says that the shift in treasury yields when last month the treasury yield fell below 4%, he says it's a critical indicator that uh, it's a sign of economic distress. That means tons of smart money were buying bonds and reducing the yield because they were actually overpaying. They were buying 5% bonds and overpaying for them, so the yield is actually 4%. So in other words, a smart money was willing to overpay for bonds and not buy into the big rally in stock. Oh, where was that money coming from? Oh, it was the big billionaires that were getting out of the stock market and buying bonds. So that's one theory. Uh, in his latest article I just read on Monday, uh, this prior Monday, he says that, that you know he sees at least a 75% chance of a big sell-off. I also ran into an interesting stat uh, by Barron's. Uh, it says that if Barron's mentions soft landing more than like six times a day or six times a week, I can't remember, it was six. If the word soft landing is mentioned in an article headline more than that many times, then a hard landing always has followed so far. So how long have we been hearing this soft landing, soft landing stuff? Shoot, we heard it in 07, right before the 08 uh, crash that you know, ended 50 plus percent down on the Dow and the S&P. Oh, it might be a soft landing. That was the worst estimate of damages. Right now, they're still saying, well, we might get out of it, but we still ought to brace at least prepare for a soft landing. Soft landing, you know, in economics, in Fed, in government terms, in Wall Street terms, that usually means brace for something a little bit harder if history repeats. And I, I have become a historian. You know, I'm in this business, you know, 30, almost 40 years now. And um, history repeats. You know, I said this before, is the most dangerous words in the stock market or dangerous words to an investor are this time it's different. Those are four words. This time it's different. You know what? It might look different. It might be a different color, but it always seems to end the same. It always ends the same. These cycles end the same. And so I'm not going to, I'm just not going to be caught on the wrong side of history. Let's say you're standing on the side of a road and you really want to get something that's on the other side of the road, but you know there's a 75% chance you're going to get squashed by a car, but you know there's a 25% chance you'll be okay. Are you going to run across that road? Well, some, some might say, well, hey, I really want that stuff that bad. It's worth it. So they'll go and you know what? You might not get hit. But, you know, if the stock market is going to crush you, 75% chance, do you really want to run, run across that road because you want higher earnings? Or would you rather stay on this side of the road, be safe, 
you know, and make five or six percent on your money because you don't have to take any risk. And, you know, the bond market will provide that for you. So again, you know, let's just, you know, calculate the risk, calculate where you are in life. If you're getting ready to retire, you retire and you want to protect the money, market's not a place to go. If you are still growing the money or if you have an amount that you can afford to play with, lose or wait on, then keep that in the market. And so again, I'm more focused on not losing money in most of these broadcasts. You know, we do have strategies for those people, maybe your kids or maybe you're still working, you got 10 more years. Yeah, we'll focus on that and we'll have a certain portion of money that you're going to dollar cost average in and we're not going to worry about. But by and large, if you're in asset protection mode, and I think that's where most people that listen to this program seem to be, at least the ones that call in and, and, and we talk to, you know, are looking more to protect their life's work. And uh, I just don't want to you know, lose sleep over their money because it's my job to not lose it. Our program is called Premier Retirement. We're talking with Jeff Vogan here of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management, and we've been talking about current events. If you'd like to get in and sit down with Jeff and talk about your individual situation, how the uh, circumstance in America may affect you and your journey towards retirement and uh, really put you on a path towards a prosperous retirement, we're offering a no-cost, no-obligation, and no-judgment retirement review. To get yours, call 520-780-9059. Again, no cost, no obligation for this What? Whatsoever. Just a friendly conversation between you and Jeff to get your questions answered. Once again, that number 520-780-9059. You can also request it online at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, time for a break. We'll be right back to answer listener questions, and we'll have more of our show right after this here on 790 KNST, Tucson's most stimulating talk. You can't start a trip you've never taken without a plan. And you can't start your retirement journey without a comprehensive plan to get there safely. To request your no-cost Premier Retirement Roadmap, call 580-780-9059 or request it online at premret.com. Now back to more Premier Retirement with Jeff Hogan and Jeff Shade. Thank you so much for making us a part of your weekend. You're listening to Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan. My name is Jeff Shade. And if you're just joining us and you wonder about the first part of the show, maybe you want to hear it all over again or you've missed any part of the show, remember we're also a podcast. Simply go to wherever you get your podcast, search for Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan. You'll find this show and many of our past shows so you can stay on top of your journey towards a prosperous retirement. Jeff, in this section, of course, we have listener questions. We're going to start it off with Mike, who's listening to us in Tucson. Mike writes, is it worth paying a financial advisor to manage retirement funds if you're confident in your own financial investment strategies? I feel like I have a solid understanding of long-term investment strategies. And as such, I feel the roughly 1% of managed assets that I would pay for and any outside advice would exceed the gains that I might see. What's your opinion? Well, Mike, you know, I mean, you're assuming you're as smart as every advisor out there. And if you think that your confidence in your own financial investment strategies is as good as you can get, then yeah, save the save the money. But the fact is, is plenty of statistics show that the average people that use advisors make more, about two to two and a half percent more per year on average by using an advisor. Why? Because they have access to things that you don't have access to. As savvy as you are, you can't get private equity unless you have millions and millions of dollars. I mean, tens of millions, probably. I'm not just guessing. You're probably a middle-class guy that listens to the radio like everybody. I mean, if you've got hundreds of millions, then yeah, you probably do have a good understanding and you, know, you probably cruise out on your yacht and talk to a hedge fund manager to deal with your money. And although those guys are willing to pay two to four percent for good managers, uh, it seems like the people that don't have money aren't willing to pay for something, even though the people that get rich usually pay much higher rates for managers because they pay for good managers. Here's the other thing is all you're going to do in life is a long-term strategy. Yeah, anybody can do that. And I would say, don't pay a fee if you're just in it for a long-term investment strategy. Buy a piece of the QQQs, which is the NASDAQ index. Buy a piece of the S&P 500 index. 
and buy it at, probably at Vanguard is probably the cheapest place you can go. And uh, just dollar cost average in or just sit and hold it. And, uh, you know, over time, you'll keep up with the market. Why? Because that is a market-based thing. Now, if you think you have a good long-term strategy that can beat the market, then you're better than about 75 to 80% of fund managers, which typically have extensive experience, and I would venture to guess, are more experienced and even more confident in their own financial investment strategies than you are. So I think, honestly, I mean, I don't mean to be rude, but I think just the thing there's no value in, you know, paying a fee for something. And I think you're right, you know, and you, you, you may have a point that, there are a lot of advisors out there that just show up to work to take orders. They don't do a dang thing except park your money and you could do that yourself. But you know, if you listen to the show very long, you know that we do different things. One thing you can't do is go out and buy your own and set up your own LERP plan. Probably you're going to have to need some sort of an advisor to get you into that and to help design the plan. You probably don't know anything that'll create income because an income plan with the stock market is a 4% rule, which means if you take more than 4% out, the volatility alone will kill your income and you'll run out of money. So, or you have a good chance of running out of money. So um, if you want to live on like 6 or 7% income, Let's say you have a million dollars, you want to live on $70,000 a year. You can't do that in the stock market. You'll run out of money in 25 years. I mean, statistics show it just based on the corrections and the market volatility that's going to happen because market volatility happens. It doesn't just go straight up for the next 25 or 30 years of your retirement. It won't do that. So if you want an advisor that can open doors up to you, you know, look for a fiduciary that's probably more worth way more than 1%. I think just in the tax savings alone, I just talked to somebody yesterday. We didn't do, have time for a case of the week in the first section, but right. I just talked to somebody yesterday that came in that we just set up their plan recently. And he's saying like, okay, well, wait a minute. My taxes are going up a little bit this year. Going up 20000 this year. I said, yes, this year and next year and 10000 the next two years. But you're saving $30,000 in taxes for the rest of your life. His fees, I mean, their fees are probably going to be ah, somewhere between three and $4,000 a year on the managed portion of their money because most of it's set up in these uh, income stream. Let's just say it's about five, actually probably close to five or $6,000 a year. So if he pays five or $6,000 a year, but saves 30000 in taxes a year, was that worth it? Okay, well, if you can do that on your own, then you should. I don't know why you're listening to the radio if you just want to come in and challenge the fact that I charge a fee for giving valuable service. And yes, I make a really good living, but my clients benefit more than I do on an overall basis. And it seems to be that they're very pleased that they do so. I do understand because I do receive a lot of clients that have other advisors and they are not getting values for their money. And it does exist out there. So I, I understand your concern, but don't just assume that every advisor out there is a dunce or a, a deadbeat and doesn't do anything that you can't do. Because there are a lot of advisors that take this business seriously, that dive deep into it every day because you had a different job probably, because you're not in this business, you wouldn't be asking this question. You'd be doing it yourself. There's probably no way, in my opinion, you could ever get as savvy or confident in investment strategies as I am. No offense, but I can't do your job either. Were you a doctor, an engineer? I can't do your job, but you can't do mine either. And you know, if, if I'm going to pay you for services, I go to the doctor and the doctor fixes me, prescribes medicine and makes me better. I'm going to pay a fee for that service. If you come here and I make your income plan tax-friendly, reduce your risk, still give you the upside you want with the money you can afford to lose or sit on the sidelines with, and that is a value, then do it. What I really would not like you to do is come here, pay one year's worth of fees, get the whole plan, then go off and try to manage it yourself because not only will it probably fail, you'll probably make a misstep along the way because as I monitor those plans, there is value added as we need to make some uh, you know, adjustments along the way. Just like a football game, when you see what the defense is like, you need to make some adjustments on your offense. When you see what the other term's offense is like, you need to make some adjustments on defense. You can't just go in with the game plan you set up you know, a year ago and just hope it works tomorrow because guess what? There's forces against you and they will make certain that there's uh, needs to change and to uh, bob and weave and make some uh, maneuvers along the way that can keep you on the path. 
And I also would say this to Mike, Jeff, is that even though you do have an understanding of long-term investment strategies, as Jeff said, you may not be equipped to design a tax plan for tax minimization. Also, you may not be equipped to talk about health care costs and to manage those and also an estate plan. So I really think that getting the advice of a financial advisor, and as Jeff said, a fiduciary financial advisor, is the way to go. But we do appreciate you listening to us in Tucson, Mike, and we'll send you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. Our next question, Jeff, is a little complex. It's from Kate in Green Valley, and she says, my spouse and I are in our 50s and live in very nice housing provided by his job. We relate to savings as we both worked for nonprofits and teaching jobs for many years and have two special needs children. We have no debt. We're now both making relatively decent money and are saving aggressively for retirement, maxing out 401k and 403b contributions to the tune of $30,000 each year, putting in the most allowed into our Roth IRAs, adding funds to our investment accounts handled by our financial advisor. In all, we're saving a little over 40% of our income each year, sometimes as much as 50%. We have one child in college, but 529 funds cover that expense. We have a second child in a privately paid special education school for the next three years, which is our largest expense. We aren't completely sure where we'll want to live when we retire in the next 15 years or so, but we still need to live somewhere. Would it be wise to continue to sock away cash into retirement funds and investments with a plan of figuring out where to live, buy or rent when we retire? Or should we try to buy now since housing will never get cheaper? One side point, we cannot afford to buy in the area where we live currently or where we work, so anything that we do buy would be a vacation home somewhere else. Thank you for any perspective that you can give us. Well, you know, it's nice that you're having housing provided by your company. I think buying a home does make sense because the equity will probably grow on par with uh, equity anywhere else. However, you know, over the long haul, real estate grows like at three or four percent a year. It doesn't really grow by eight or 10. It does not keep up with the same growth rate typically as stock market investments go. However, having said that, 15 years, yeah, that seems like a long time. You could dollar cost average into the market with your 401k and 403b money, knowing that there's going to be some volatility. Frankly, I think the next decade is going to be tough. I think it's going to be kind of a roller coaster ride like the like the decade after the dot bombs. When they bombed, I think we're going to go through kind of a similar reset with that. And there might be kind of a lost decade where we have two you know major corrective periods during the next decade or so. Well, okay. You know, maybe depending on, you just started saving now, so I don't know what your situation is, you know, but maybe every time you get to $500,000, you take a little bit off the table and, you know, put it in something safe that guarantees some growth for income later, but you keep dollar cost averaging into the market and try to, you know, make eight or 10% on average on that money, which should keep up with the cost of real estate wherever you go. And then maybe you just pick and choose a pretty cost effective place to retire to. There's a lot of places that are really good to work in because uh, income is high and so is housing. Well, maybe you're taking advantage of that right now. But, you know, Green Valley is a nice place to live. But, you know, housing, what is it, doubled in the last few years? Mm-hmm. I mean, I just can't see it double in the next few. But I can see other markets that haven't grown in value, like some in the southeast. There's some really nice places to live that uh, you could go to. There's even places in more rural areas that you might want to just get out a little bit of land and, you know, go to that's a little bit lower key and doesn't have high cost of living because uh, you don't have high wages. Oh, by the way, I have a vacation home. So if you have a vacation home, either... Plan on renting it out and hope you have a good manager so you can make the money, you know, to kind of keep it paid for and, you know, keep whatever mortgage you might, you know, have to get to, to own it. Also, just keep in mind, there's going to be taxes, there's going to be upkeep, there's going to be stuff that's going to cost you money. Owning a house just to own a house, 
unless you're living in it and benefiting by it, I think is kind of a crapshoot, especially if it's not in your general vicinity where you can watch it and take care of it, manage it and live in it. You know, my thought is what if your company, instead of giving you just a nice housing that is provided by your job, could they offer to compensate you $4,000 a month so you can buy a place? In that case, then you get that equity play that might be available. You know, maybe they'd be up, up to that. I don't know if that's even a possibility, but that'd be something I'd certainly inquire about. Maybe you've already done that and that's why you're asking the question. But bottom line is you're saving a tremendous amount of money every year, 40 to 50% of your income. What I would also suggest is, and I would venture to guess most financial advisors that deal with you know Ross IRAs and other money are just money managers. They're just portfolio managers. They don't do the indexed annuities that provide income riders. They don't provide, you know, and if you have a 529 plan, you dealt with a, with a brokerage firm, you didn't deal with me because I would have told you LERP works better. You know, life insurance, if you're healthy, what about having a life insurance plan that if something happened to either you or your husband, that you'd have maybe a million dollars or more or a, a sizable chunk of money that would be available to make sure that those special needs children are taken care of long haul in a special needs trust to where it's it's fully funded rather than say, gosh, I hope we live long enough to uh, grow our estate to millions of dollars so that when we die, our kids are going to be okay. And bless your heart, by the way, two special needs children. We had one, as, as you know, and she passed away, but I know it's hard. It's hard raising special needs children. Bless your hearts for being able to both uh, carry on jobs and take care of them. Uh, one's in college. That's great. Must be you know fairly high functioning, and that's awesome. But uh, you know, bottom line is, you got responsibilities that typically end when kids reach age of majority, like most people's kids. Well, you've got those. You're still going to have those for the long haul. It sounds like so. You know, I would consider putting the extra money that you're not cramming into that 401k and 403b into stuff that would generate income, tax-free benefits, and death benefits that would more than compensate if one of you passed away early and you didn't have that income for the remaining uh, period of this uh, 15 years or so. So and maybe you have some life insurance and maybe that's that's covered. But if you could do a plan where you could actually use it as a savings mechanism, a tax-free savings mechanism, so down the road in your retirement years, when you're possibly, and if you save this much and are really cranking full your 401ks and all that stuff, um, you may be in a tax problem when you have to start pulling that money out to live on. Maybe it'd be nice that all your other assets didn't cause you a tax problem, except when you earn the money, once you put it in LERPs, life insurance retirement plans, as I mentioned before, and maybe you haven't you know, listened to enough shows to know how they work, but it's certainly something I'd like to dive into with you if you're interested, but is to overfund life insurance where you stick money away in a tax-free account. It doesn't bother you. During your work, it never creates a tax burden for you. And when you retire, you borrow money against your death benefit, which is tax-free, and it doesn't show up on your tax returns then either. So you know, a lot of the, the, the problem with investing outside of your 403 and 401k or your Ross is that all those investments, if you have a good year, you have to pay tax on that in addition to the really good incomes that you're making. So if you're in a 33 or higher tax bracket or 40%, if you're doing really well, you know, maybe you're paying 40% on all your income that you're making on dividends and, you know, the trading that mutual funds do every year. If you want to get out of that and have a more efficient way to grow your money in a safe place, to kind of lock in gains as you go with the money that you're not putting in your 401 and 403B, dollar cost average with that money. That way, if the markets don't perform, well, at least you're not paying taxes on it. In the other cases, what if the market goes up, you pay taxes for a few years on all the gains and the market crashes, you're only worth half and you don't even get to, you don't even get to write the whole thing off because you don't have gains to write it off against. So there's a lot of problems that I see in just the nuts and bolts of what you disclosed here in this uh, scenario. And I think you're just getting a portfolio manager that doesn't care about your taxes, doesn't care about your future income, doesn't care about what if you die early, and isn't providing for a lot of the contingencies that a holistic planner or a comprehensive planner that's a fiduciary that actually works for you, not just this company, would probably want to do for you. Kate, thank you so much for listening to us. All the best to you. And of course, your book is on the way. Final question this week. Jeff comes from Lisa listening to us in Dove Mountain. And Lisa writes... 
We have about $3 million in real estate assets, single-family rentals mostly, but oh, about $900,000 on the mortgages. I'm 61, my husband is 56, and he doesn't plan to retire until he's 67. We have about $300,000 in an IRA and 401k and 403b assets. I don't take any income out of the rentals as my husband's income is $200,000. With our Social Security and pensions, our basics will be met. My question is, should I keep the rentals and turn them over to a property manager or slowly sell them over the next five to seven years because I'm tired of self-managing? The current annual income after mortgages and all the expenses is around $70,000. That's before income taxes paid. Could I get the same income or drawdown if I sold the rentals and invested the money in stocks and bonds? Well, if you invest the money in stocks and bonds, I think you're probably looking at a, you know, the, if you use the rule of thumb, which is a 4% rule, and honestly, with, with volatility that we've seen in the last decade or so, they've kind of lowered that to be about a 2.4% withdrawal rate, according to a Barron's article I read a few years ago and some other things that have just come out lately. So if you're getting, if your net equity in these $3 million in properties because you owe 900 is $2.1 million, and let's say you sold them as $2 million, let's just say it's $2.1 million. So let's say you sold them, you had $2 million, you put it in stocks. Okay, so you could continue to take seventy dollars or $80,000 out per year. Year, but you'd be paying tax on you know gains as you pull the money out. You're paying tax on uh, interest and dividends that you might make on those securities and stocks and bonds, and maybe be left with about fifty thousand dollars to spend. I'm going to make this all about LERPs, life insurance retirement plans. How would you like double that income in a tax-free paycheck every month? That wouldn't hurt you with all your other income. And if you didn't want double the income, you could still leave two or $3 million to your heirs. So I just did a plan, it's very similar to this. A, a client sold a, a small apartment building and uh, like I think it was a fourplex actually for about $2 million and was making, I think their net was only around 40 or 50,000 hour just because a lot of deferred maintenance, a lot of things kept coming up. So I mean, you're, probably, you're doing okay. Bottom line is you know, they were tired of renting. They were tired of being woke up in the middle of the night because a water heater blew up or you know something like that. So they ended up selling these uh, couple of fourplexes that they had in had about $2 million, sold them. What we did is we put a million dollars over the next five years, 250 a year, actually about 250 a year for the next five years. We're going to get some interest on some of that money. And immediately after the second uh, year, we're going to start taking about sixty or $70,000 in income, which was more than they were making, which is right in line with where you're at. And that would be tax-free money. Now that LERP is just half of the money. The other LERP we would put away as either in a trust, depending on your tax situation or estate tax situation. It doesn't sound like you're there yet, but if you have really big estates, we use trust. If we don't, we just use the LERPs and we say, hey, this is a legacy plan. If I put the other million dollars over the next five or seven years into a legacy plan, now I have $3 million in death benefit that I can give my kids tax-free. So you're guaranteed to give your kids $3 million tax-free because you're not touching that money. You're still living on the 70,000 you were going to live on anyway. You don't have to pay taxes on it, so you're net ahead. You're still going to have a death benefit on the LERP that you're drawing the loans from, or you're not actually drawing it down. You're actually borrowing against it. And you, know, you might have basically double your equity by the time you die. Now, granted, could real estate be worth more than that? Yes, but are the headaches worth it? Maybe not. Even a real estate manager is going to charge you fees, which is going to put a big dent in that 70000 probably about ten grand a year minimum. Plus, you've got the deferred maintenance that's going to creep up in the next few years because there always is, even if it's new houses or even if you just totally refurbed everything. Not everything stays refurbed forever. So you know, you're going to have those uh, maintenance costs, those upkeep costs, the surprises, and all those things that are still going to stress you out. So you might want to look at a different type of a program or... Let's say you sell it for $2 million and put something into an index annuity that guarantees you $70,000 a year for as long as you live. And then you put the other, again, into a tax-free LERP. So it just depends on if you want taxable income, tax-free income, how much income you really need. You know, is your husband going to make the $200,000 forever? No, he's probably going to have to retire. And then you're going to end up end up having to take uh, just Social Security and whatever you get off your investment. So if you, if you can live on 
between 100 and 200,000, I see this as an easy fix, and you're still going to leave your kids millions of dollars when you die if you are looking at doing that for heirs. And I don't know your kid's situation based on your question. Lisa, thanks for that question. Of course, we'll be sending you out Jeff's book, Retire with the Road Ahead. If you've got a question you'd like us to answer on the air, you can get it to us by going to our website, premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Send us your question. If we do use it on the air, of course, we'll send you out Jeff's book, Retire with the Road Ahead. And as always, if you would like to sit down with Jeff and have your own individual conversation to put you on a path towards a successful retirement, we're offering it at no cost and no obligation whatsoever. 520-780-9059 is the number to call. You can do it this weekend if you like. Leave your information. Shelly will give you a call back on Monday and get you in to have a conversation with Jeff so that you can head off some things that may affect you later on in retirement. If you take care of them now, you're going to be so much better off. Again, that number 520-780-9059. No cost, no obligation. You can also request your Premier Retirement Roadmap online at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, I always remind people to call 520-780-9059 every week so they can get their no-cost, no-obligation retirement roadmap. But I wanted to talk a little bit about what this five-point retirement review consists of. It's about an hour or so, but it could be the best time investment that you'll ever make. So let's start off with uh, number one. Where do we start with this retirement roadmap review? Well, really, it's just about what are your goals. You know, you have to kind of know who, who do you want to be in retirement. And, uh, you know, sometimes you don't really know what your goals are because you're not really sure about how much income you can generate from your savings and from your investments and what your tax situation is going to be. So, you know, we have knowledge on all that stuff. So basically, it's just kind of a get to know you meeting up front. It's just, okay, where are you at? You know, where are your assets? What are your plans now? What are your goals? Are your current plans going to get you closer to your goals or possibly you know, uh, meet up with a few obstacles and hiccups along the way that you want to avoid. And and we try to, you know, have a, a, a dialogue for an hour or so, just kind of figuring that out. Now, the areas that you're going to have to worry about in retirement, which you probably didn't have to worry about during your working years, for example, you know, health insurance probably had benefits at work. You had uh, income because you had a paycheck. You have 401k match. People were adding money to your 401k or your investment strategies, you know, in not in all likelihood, but in probably more than half the cases. So you've got an investment strategy where you're just dollar cost averaging. You're just putting money away and you're just saving, saving, saving. Well, so your you know, health care, income, investment needs pretty much met. Your estate planning, well, hopefully you had a will or a trust or something in place in case you got hit by a truck during your working years so that your heirs would be provided, your spouse would be provided and so forth. Maybe you had some life insurance that would you know take care of you to replace income if one of you died early or maybe to create a future tax-free income in the future if you have actually heard about LERPs when you should have back in your 30s or 40s instead of you know when you're getting ready to retire because you start listening to my radio show. But bottom line is there's five areas. You've got to make sure that your income needs are met and that your investments correlate with generating income and not risking your ability to take income because you're taking too much risk. So you need to be very risk conscious of you know what your portfolio or what your overall plan would dictate as a responsible amount to have market-based and the responsible amount that would have a principal protection-based. Now, just because the market doesn't go up and your principal protected doesn't mean you're going to make money when the market doesn't. I mean, you might make money the same year as the market does. And you might not make money the same year your market doesn't. But if the market, if you got money in the market and it goes down, you don't want to use that money when it's at a loss because you're going to lock in losses. It's nice to have money that you put into a principal protected account that might have even grown by two or three or four or five or 12 or 15%, but is locked in at that level rather than giving back those gains when the market corrects. So you always want to have money that you can take out of a place without sustaining a loss, you know, to the best ability you can. That's not always possible, but that's what we try to do. So income and investments have to correlate. You have to have the right risk tolerance and the right income plan to replace those paychecks that you're not going to get. Other than, you know, when you're not working, you don't get that paycheck from work. You're just going to get those social security checks, maybe a pension check, and then whatever you can deal with from your investments. So we try to make sure that those, what you're expected 
hopeful spendable amount is going to be and we have a goal so we try to make that goal and use as much of your retirement savings to lock up not to lock up but to actually set aside for income in other words we're going to just like keep it out of the market and create that sense of security and, and uh, guaranteed in some cases, but at least predictable income going forward. And then whatever you have left, we can decide, you know, how much of that you really want to risk. Sometimes people say like, you know what, why do I need to risk anything? It looks like I got all my income plans met. I like to just make sure that I don't lose the rest. That's fine. But if you say, you know what, I still like swinging for the fences. I still get a adrenaline rush when the market goes up. You know, let's risk a few hundred thousand. Let's risk a third of my assets, whatever. Let's risk half of them. Or I've got so many millions, I don't even need the money. Let's risk it all. Whatever your situation is, we go through that. And then we say, okay, now based on that income plan, you've got, uh, we kind of set the basics there. Then we say, okay, what, what do you have now? You've got a tax problem. How much of this investment income are you actually going to get to keep? Which is basically all the money you put in your bank account minus what you have to send to the government or pay for other bills. Maybe it's you know health insurance, uh, Medicare deductibles. Maybe it's Medicare premiums that are double or triple what they should be because you're showing too much income on your tax returns. So now we look at that and say, okay, how do we make your tax returns look a little bit more favorable so you don't look like a rich guy and don't get have to be taxed like a rich guy, but you can still live like a rich guy. So how do we do that? Well, we start maneuvering some of those investments into assets that are either principal protected or possibly not principal protected, but that are tax favorable. I like LERPs. I mention it all the time. Life insurance has a very unique characteristic, and that is that the death benefit is not taxable, and you can borrow against your cash value at will for a lower rate in some cases than what you make. So, you know, that's what we shoot for. If that's a plan, then maybe you can generate, if you're generating $200,000 a year in taxable income and you'd like it to be $100,000 a year, and maybe you've got a couple million dollars in savings, maybe we need to divert a couple uh, $1 million of that into an asset class that doesn't create a tax problem, but actually saves you taxes. You know, in that case, we only have to make about seventy or $80,000 off of that other, you know, chunk of money in order to be the tax equivalent as $100,000, right? So, you know, maybe you make two hundred or 180 or 200 but you only pay tax on 100 Now you're paying less than half the taxes you would have paid if you were paying taxes on the whole amount. So now we've got the first three done. Okay, what happens if you get sick? What happens if you go to a nursing home, can't take care of yourself, have a stroke, heaven forbid, like my father, get cancer and have to go into some treatments where you're just not really able to get around and do much, but uh, the costs go through the roof. Are you going to be able to pay that out of savings? Or do you have a long-term care policy or health supplement that would cover those bills? Medicare does not cover long-term care facilities. If you have to go to a nursing home or an Alzheimer's facility, heaven forbid. And then, of course, there's the estate plan. Who do you give your stuff to? Who you want, how you want, with the least amount of trouble. So it's really a comprehensive five-part plan. You know, we look at it from top to bottom, but it starts with a conversation with you. What are your goals? Where are you at? And where can we get you to where you want to be? If you want your five-point retirement review with Jeff at no cost, no obligation, that does cover all these things, again, that telephone number, 520-780-9059. 520-780-9059. No cost, no obligation for this, and certainly no judgment. You can also request it online at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, out of time for this week. Thank you for your time, but also I want to thank our fine listeners here in the greater Tucson area for joining us. We'll talk again next week with another edition of Premier Retirement right here on 790 KNST, Tucson's most stimulating talk. Investment advisory services provided through Premier Wealth Advisors, LLC, an Arizona state registered investment advisor. Securities transactions are placed through TD Ameritrade. Insurance and annuity products are offered through Premier Advantage Inc., DBA Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Investing involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Any reference to protection, safety, or lifetime income generally refer to fixed insurance products. Insurance guarantees are backed by the financial strength and claims paying abilities of the insurance carrier. The show is intended for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as advice or recommendations. Due to show format, accuracy, and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Premier Retirement and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice and may only conduct business with residents of states and jurisdictions where they're properly registered. 